are many companies in implementing agile in the world today as a way to get more flexible with the outside world changes and also as a way of getting things done faster and in a more collaborative way, hopefully. Today I'm talking to the, the authors of for Agile Methods for Safety Critical Systems, Nancy Van Schindewart and Brian Shoemaker. My name is Donna Jones. You're listening to the Insight to Action podcast. In this program, we are looking more carefully at what's the role of Agile, what happens when it works well, what happens when it doesn't. We'll talk a little bit about the impact on safety device, medical devices, I'm sorry, medical devices, which will have an impact on you, on, on your life as well. So Brian Shoemaker is the principal of Shoebar Software Associates. His work involves software quality and validation, clinical trials, and a variety of other things, which I'll let him delve into. If, and Nancy Van Schindewert is the president of Lean Agile Partners. Her work is in agile hardware and software, and she has also done a tremendous amount to help me in the various work I do with uh, change and transition, and regardless of the sector and the situation, Nancy's been tremendously supportive to help me understand what the contexts are so that I can more specifically help people connect with very advanced concepts in moving forward through that quite smoothly. I'd like to welcome you both to the program and let's jump in and talk about this book that you've just put out. What problem does your book, Agile Methods for Safety Critical Systems, solve? I would say that we are hoping to remove the concern that medical device managers have. They feel that Agile is somehow getting its speed from shortcuts that are unsafe. And I totally understand that kind of a suspicion. So we do that in our book by explaining some of the counterintuitive aspects of Agile that really are puzzling to people who are new to it or maybe who've heard of it before but really haven't they haven't had it explained to them by someone who really understands it from the inside out. I'll augment what Nancy has to say by, by pointing out that a lot of people in the, in the industry that I work in, largely medical devices, have looked at Agile and think, geez, you know, we'd like to have those benefits, but wow, I, I'm not sure whether or not all the compliance stuff that, we're, that we need to do is going to fit with this. Yes, there exists a document that the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation put out several years ago in 2012, Amy Technical Information Report 45, but they say, eh, that really doesn't tell us anything about what you do. You know, how, how, do, how do we get there? So we've picked up in this book where TIR 45 left off. We feel that by having a book about the approach, gives people something to chew on, something to, to get into without having to commit to uh, you know, how long are we going to have this coach in here and you know how much is it going to end up costing us. They can buy a book and read about it and get some sense of what is, is going to be involved in, and how to, to, to approach these things. Well, in that sense, I think what we'll talk about today is, is uh, pretty applicable to any company that's implementing Agile because uh, – there is always a lot of suspicion when something new comes in, particularly if it does things faster. People, I mean, I found, found in my facilitation work, there was a general assumption that the longer it took you to get somewhere, the better quality the work would be. And so there'd be a lot of distrust if you actually got it done faster, like in way faster, that it wasn't the right answer. So in one case, we had the management team go back in and came out another day and a half later with exactly the same answer, but they trusted it this time. So it's fascinating how that works. 
let's go into a variation and experimentation because increasingly that's the way to move forward, yet it's considered wasteful by traditional management, or sorry, traditional production uh, mindset. What's the value of experimentation and what are the risks? I have an example I'd like to uh, give, but let me just summarize first by saying, you know, here's one of those counterintuitive things where people see experimentation as, oh, that's something that's going to lead you off the trail somehow. But when it's used the way Agile teams use it, it, it is one of the things that reduces risk. And by reducing risk, you eliminate some of these uh, uh, problems that come up and really, really eat your time. An instrument team that I worked on some years ago, we had to make our instrument operate on a small network with other instruments. And uh, I was on the development team, and we asked our partner company, hey, could we have the physical network wiring to use in our lab to make sure that the boot code was going to synchronize correctly, does a bunch of handshaking as it boots up. And we had done our firmware according to the spec they gave us, but, you know, there's nothing like testing it out. But everybody decided that that was an expense not worth doing. So when the time came to make the network connections happen later on in a full system tests with all kinds of other stuff in there, the boot sequence froze on the network. <laughs> and it was extremely hard to debug. We had to do that debugging in a situation that was just expensive, you know, to go off the planned path. So, you know, there's an example. So sometimes these things that traditional projects do that seem like a, a time saver, they're really risk adders. You know, the medicine for that is to do some of the right kind of experimentation along the way. The agile processes help you to do that in a way that's smart by bringing together what all the team people know. Nancy and I have both spoken about this question of experimentation and variation, and it's inherent in a, in a production kind of a mindset. However, much of what we talk about, based on, on Nancy's experience, has to do is drawn from lean principles. Lean principles apply in one way for a production situation; they apply in a different way for a development situation. Production likes to minimize variation, stop experiments, and keep things constant, where development needs to try different things out in order to get the best answer. So the experimentation, just as, as Nancy was pointing out, the experimentation has a way of eliminating things that we didn't realize were not going to work. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I know for my listeners, there are going to be some that are going to say, hey, this is way too specific for me and, and, and too technical and everything else. But, I mean, we're here to actually explore what are the, the, the nuances in the thinking that makes a difference between why one works in the, worked in the past or, or, or at least was assumed to always work and, and why uh, something in a, a more agile, nonlinear type of framework and yet there's certainly linear elements to to agile uh, works better so thanks for that distinction so now let's talk about risk a bit uh, with the because there's a lot of fear right now that's in every decision the context the political environment uh, factors risk you know just sort of spreads it out throughout the world and and so there's a tendency to avoid it and or to be unconscious of the impact of it as opposed to using risk for to be more creative and to be more innovative. Building from what we were just describing, 
the whole issue around cybersecurity, and I'll throw in something else that's very important in the medical device field that uh, other other fields may not think about all that much. It has to do with safety. Is it possible for the thing that we're developing to be used or misused in some way which could hurt somebody or even kill somebody? And that's a consideration that must be looked at for every new development, systematically addressed. It's not something that you can avoid. So in for, both for cybersecurity and safety, safety type of uh, issues around risk, then the Agile team has a chance to examine and re-examine both their kind of assumptions and the way that their system works and how particular features might interact with others to create a condition that could either lead to a safety issue or a, or a security hole. Because of the kind of iterative nature, the question can be looked at over and over again. Too often in developments that I've seen in the past in, in medical device type areas, the risk analysis having to do with safety risk was something that was done either at the very beginning and then allowed to gather dust or at the very end when you really didn't have much chance to make modifications. So the ability to look at security issues and safety issues in an iterative way as you're going along can only make a product safer or more secure. In our book, we have a section about uh, cybersecurity and those aspects of safety. One of the ideas that uh, is out there is that the problem with so much of the security, Brian just alluded to it, tends to be that people construct like a big moat, but then in, once you cross that moat, all the castle doors are unlocked inside. You know what I mean? They tend to uh, create this big hard shell, but then once you know, once you break through that, everything is open. So that's just a um, an architecture that needs to be rethought. And there are people with those skills who know how to do that. But one of the things we quote in our book is a fellow with uh, quite a lot of expertise who talks with many companies. And he said that what he's hearing from CEOs and people in the industry is that, well, we're going to have to just wait until the market forces us to do this. There's a reluctance to be first to do the big spend on that and to either wait till regulation or the market forces it. So that's a that's kind of a structural problem, I think, in, in our industry that needs to be addressed. Yeah, massive leadership issue right there, I must say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Similarly, when I you know, work with or, or listen to what's going on in the implementation of Agile, there's a lot of companies who, at the top level, they believe they're implementing Agile, but when you get lower down into the actual process, it's, it's, it's not happening quite the, that same way. Some learn the language of Agile but change nothing. Others play with the practices and make it look like they're being Agile, but they're still sticking to the same style of directing performance. What makes implementation authentic and, and what's the relevance to, uh, to implementing it for, you know, in the context of medical devices or any other context for that matter? I think that Agile has to be more than skin deep. It's got to be more than just a fix for the development teams. And it's often implemented that way. The problem is seen as, hey, you know, we, we just can't get software to deliver on time. They, they bound the problem too narrowly and um, apply a bit of Agile training, maybe, <laughs> or ask people to just learn it on their own. And, and that's when 
you really create a ceiling on how much benefit you can get. The truth is that uh, Agile goes deeper than just the team level. It really is part of a bigger concept that says knowledge work needs to be supported and, and the company structures need to be different than just a hierarchy because all the knowledge isn't at the top. The knowledge is out there with the people doing the work for the most part when we're talking about knowledge work in high-tech companies. And so a, a company that mirrors that kind of structure is going to work better. Um, and I know that sounds kind of abstract, but there are plenty of uh, writings along these lines that I'm sure we can refer people to. But I'm just saying it's got to be more than skin deep or you really bound the amount of benefit that you can get. Brian, do you want to say something about the medical aspects? Absolutely. There have been several occasions when in uh, advising companies who are putting together, say, an NFDA submission, they say they're agile and then they start showing me their approach and I go, you're not agile. Come on, give me a break. You don't do any kind of product demonstrations on a regular basis, you're not agile. You try to put all of your requirements down in written form before ever implementing anything, you're not agile. There are some very strong keys that I can see very quickly. I'm not sure I can characterize all of them, but I have a sense of exactly what Nancy was just saying. If, they, if they're trying to cling to some sort of a hierarchical, hierarchical approach with a... Uh, plan it all up front attitude and just saying we're going to slap on something that's that's iterative in the process of implementing this, I know they're not agile. It, it's, it's very obvious when I see it. Brian, you just reminded me that, you know, one of the things I noticed, I don't know, somewhere along the way when we were uh, writing about risk or preparing our course, is that so many companies, they think that risk will go away if you just do extra planning or if you do extra documentation, that it somehow makes the risk itself go away. But, I mean, the nature of risk is that it might happen, it might not. And, of course, you've got to have some mitigations in place, but uh, putting yourself through super detailed planning, far out, you know, a, a year out, two years out, is not a way to reduce risk. That's the realization I came to, but once I thought about it that way, way, I looked around and I could see that it seems like everybody is trying to use that as the way to make risk not be a problem. And you can't do that. You have to just have a plan A and a plan B and go forward. You have to have the confidence that you can quickly turn and deal with a new development that should crop up. And that's the difference with Agile. It, it invests in that ability, the ability to turn quickly and without a lot of losses, you know, which is what you have if you do too much heavy planning up front. You know, then if you change direction, you, you lose an awful lot of um, time and work invested. If someone were to look at their own company and say, you know, are we doing fake agile here or is this for real? What, what other signals would indicate that it's, uh, it's, it's fake or a masquerade? Well, one of the things that's going to give you problems is if you layer all the agile practices on top of what you already have, you know, rather than making a substitution. Uh, just as a simple example, many companies have a reporting structure and a stat, you know, set of status meetings that everyone has to go to. Well, agile has its own ways of statusing things. 
you know, you can see the team's uh, storyboard. There's a lot of transparency. It's just a matter of looking at it. You don't really need a meeting to understand the status of the project. But many companies say, no, we're not going to give up our status meeting because that's commanded on high. So, you know, they layer uh, Agile on top of what they're already doing, and then people will complain that, well, we don't like Agile because it added a bunch of extra meetings for us, when that shouldn't be the case at all. Agile does have some meetings, but they tend to be working meetings, (laughs) you know, where you're actually doing things. So that's one of the signs. Another very clear sign is that in a traditional development approach, people in in the management area and in the uh, marketing area, whoever decides what kind of a product it's going to be, they feel that their involvement is only at the very beginning. We're going we're gonna to say what the developers are going to build, and then we give it to them, classically known as throwing it over the wall, and then we go away. We don't touch them, and however long it takes them, and we, uh, we have to give some constraints on how long they can take, they come back and they've developed it. That's a clear sign that somebody's not being agile. The people who are invested in having a new product need to have some level of involvement as the product development takes place. That's a classic one, too. It, it goes tightly with the other that I always look for is the question, does the team have any way to get some feedback before the end of their development period? This is not always easy to arrange for medical device projects, but companies typically have some customers that are particularly interested in a new development and may cooperate um, in some of the uh, exploratory work might be doing early on. So there are ways to get around this, but it's not something that a development team can arrange on their own. This is one of the areas where the company needs to support them and sort of be thinking about how do we construct a feedback loop that lets us know ahead of time whether our target has shifted you know, since the time we began tracking towards it. Nancy's point was a very important one, which we make a, a, a very clear case for in the book. We talk about two different kinds of feedback loops. There's the feedback loop of the, the team working on what they're working on, getting information, so the team interacting with the system that they're developing, and that's the, that has to do with the experimentation we were talking about a little while ago. And then there's a feedback loop of the team as it develops, getting information from the people who might be using it, saying, yeah, that'll work for us, or no, that doesn't really fit in our workflow. So these two feedback loops have to be functioning all the time during the development. Well, and what you're getting at is is not just specific to Agile. It's fundamental to being able to function as a living system where you have multiple feedback loops as opposed to, you know, just the profit line at the bottom of the, you know, when you, when you stare, whenever you stare at that monthly or weekly or whatever kind of obsession there is with the profit, uh, the bottom line indicator. So, so having multiple feedback loops actually is part of knowing whether you're now, you know, it's adjusting your navigation system overall. So now let's talk a bit about retrospectives because I've, I've heard in certain environments where Agile is being implemented, they'll say, well, you know, that's a waste of time. We don't want to do that. We just want to, you know, in other words, there's some resistance toward getting people together and learning. <laughs> and particularly that's going to be pertinent in companies that are really addicted to action without actually staying, you know, knowing where they're going or, or they're sticking to very habitual practices around how things get done. What What is a retrospective? What value does it add? 
what do you say to companies who decide or, or teams, teams that decide that they don't want to do that anymore because they've got better things to do? Well, let me respond to that one. Let me contrast working solo to working as a group. When you work solo, you discover some new information or you try something and maybe it doesn't work as you expected. You take a little bit of time to reflect and adjust your thinking. You just sort of do this naturally on your own. But when you're part of a team that's really working in close collaboration, um, and agile teams work more closely together than traditional teams. To, to be part of an agile team, you're really in dialogue with many of the other people on your team much more than you are in a traditional team. Okay, so that's another aspect. But when you're working with a group, a period of time goes by, experiences happen, and as a group, you still need to pause and reflect and ask yourselves, okay, what happened and what do I conclude from that? What do we conclude from that? So it's very helpful for you to actually do that, give some space to it, because you then might want to modify your behavior. For instance, you might realize that testing the batch of stories you just signed up to do this past period turned out to be quite a bottleneck, and you might discover some reasons for that that you hadn't appreciated before. And so you might decide uh, in future, either we're going to sequence the work to balance types of loads differently, or maybe what we'll do is do a little cross-skilling in some specific areas that will keep that from being a bottleneck in the future. It opens up a path for you to come up with some specific improvements that benefit the whole group. Now, I will say one of the big reasons that I see companies dropping uh, retrospectives is because it actually does take some skill to facilitate this, and that skill doesn't appear magically. There has to be some intent. There has to be some leadership in the company to kind of bring the skill in. Now, the way it's worked for me when I've coached teams is – they will start to see and appreciate the benefits that come from the retrospective. And somebody in the team, it, it has never failed. And I've coached a lot of teams now over the years. It's never failed that someone in the team starts to get more curious and more interested in the workings of the agile process. And, and, and even in, you know, what makes a good retrospective, they start getting more interested and curious because they see this as a beneficial thing. And they tend to be the kind of people who, will make a good facilitator because they've taken an active interest and some curiosity about it. And then I help them learn some of the techniques. But, you know, I mean, I also just want to say that someone like yourself, Donna, you're, you have real expertise in this area. There are a lot of people who know how to do this better than I do. <laughs> and companies can get a lot, of, uh, a lot of mileage from that, you know, used in the right situation. So I think the facilitation is a key. It's a kind of a hidden skill um, that people don't understand. Uh, it's, not, it's not that visible because when you're a good facilitator, you seem to not be doing anything. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is the whole idea, actually. So thank you for that, Nancy. <laughs> yeah. And indeed, the whole concept of the retrospective is nothing new when you come, come down to basic quality principles. The quality cycle is plan, do, check, act, and the retrospective is right solidly there in the check. What did we do? How did we get there? Uh, what worked well? What can we do better? I've had people that Nancy and I have done some work for ask me, okay, what would you put into your Agile SOP? And I just groan when I hear that because Agile isn't an SOP. Agile is a mindset. 
for listeners, just for clarity, SOP stands for? Standard Operating Procedure. So Agile is a mindset, not a, not a particular fixed way of approaching things. And something that's key to the Agile approach, that, and this relates back to your earlier question, is a willingness to modify how we approach the problems that we're solving. And they can, that can come out of the retrospective. Yeah, exactly. This is so much a part of being a learning, you know, in integrating a learning mindset into the process. And without that, companies are busy do, 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 but they're not busy clear on what they're doing or where they're going. They're just kind of active, just busy. So, I, you know, my own experience in this is that it's, it's absolutely critical, particularly for navigating today. So thank you both for those, um, those insights. I just want to say that when you're doing this as a group, that's what makes the retrospective necessary. Because people don't have access to each other's thinking unless they pause and talk about it. Yeah, exactly. So a retrospective isn't necessary when you're working solo. It just all happens inside your own head, we hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the we hope part is it because there's, a, I mean, we used to do this at the end of every uh, bit of work we ever did. We'd sit back and say, you know, do a retrospective. And I would do my own on my in myself, but but as Charlie King said in the interview I did with Clearlink, which is uh, elsewhere on this podcast, uh, this is where you find out w- w- what ideas work, what ideas didn't, you know, don't kind of resonate with people. It's really where you get to adjust and tweak and 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 connect with with people. And boy, connection is critical right now. So yeah, it's it's the way that you improve as a group. So when you cut that out you now eliminate um, most of your capability to improve how you're doing as a group. Big mistake. Can you both share some successes where implementers have actually used Agile to grow themselves in their companies? And, and again, you know, pop in any examples you, you care to with the medical device sector. Well, I'll mention uh, Medidata. They're a company that we've become aware of because we're really impressed by the way they've created like a DevOps uh, practice within their company. Let me back up and say what they do. They uh, they manage clinical trials data for many other companies. So it's a and, software-only company in that sense. And in doing this uh, data, clinical trial data management, they're constantly doing development of specific tools to be used in particular trials for the collection of the clinical trial data. Right. They have like over... 650 clients and partners. Um, they cover some more like 16,000 clinical studies. This is some data from them from a couple of years ago. They have uh, 60 terabytes of source data. And they manage all of this with their workforce in the U.S. and the U.K. They manage all of this using Agile practices. They could never do it without that. They began moving to Agile, I think, around eight years ago, if I remember right. And... Um, and there's just no going back. They have around a thousand employees. That's a, a great example. Brian, do you want to say a little about Optos? In, a, in an example from just a few years ago, Nancy and I were able to do some some uh, coaching work with Optos, which is an optical device company based in Scott. They turned to us. They had local training, but they turned to us for some coaching on how to approach their projects and taking some ideas that and they. They looked at a, at a project they were going to abandon and said, you know, what, what, what can we do about this? We talked to them both about how the agile approach, the flexible approach can be very, very useful for things where you don't necessarily know everything up front. But we also gave them some ideas how to 
plan projects in a way that's flexible enough for everybody who looks at the project to be able to, to weigh in on the things that you're going to be doing. Um, we looked at, we in particular, the, the planning started using what Goiko Adzich called impact mapping. You know, who are the people that you're, you're trying to influence, what your goals are, what are the things that you need to develop in order to have the influence that you're looking for. And it's a very visual approach that everybody, not just marketing, not just management, can see and understand and say, well, what about this? Well, what about that? We help them lay out an impact map for a project, and they were they were very, very pleased with the idea. What happened was they, they had a couple of projects they wanted to focus on when we first engaged with them, and there was one that they said, no, let's not even try with that one. That's, we're beyond helping that. But then it turned out that as time went by, they were able to rescue that one that they had left for dead, and they were really surprised. So, you know, what we really ended up doing was help the middle managers collaborate with one another. Because like so many medical companies, one of the first questions they had for us is, um, you know, the development manager said to us, I don't know if regulatory affairs is going to let us use Agile. So we said, well, let us talk with them, you know. So Brian spoke with them, and then, you know, we got them talking together with one another. And then using the impact mapping technique, we, uh, we got several of the middle managers to collaborate with one another and bring their thoughts together. And that helped them become the support that the team needed. Excellent. So err on the side of collaboration over drawing a conclusion and walking away of some kind. Right. Absolutely. But I think that it wasn't a collaboration they would have thought to do on their own. Do you know what I mean? They wouldn't have known about that technique and they, I'm sure they knew of a lot of the questions they had, but they would have been groping around for the for answers that would be useful in their context. So that was why we were able to help. Two more two more things for you today. What what's the one question that anyone listening to this program who is looking at Agile as a solution, implementing Agile in their company, or who already is doing that? But what's the one question they should ask themselves before either before going ahead or while they're in the process? The way I would answer that is they need to realize that training alone is not enough. So they should be asking themselves, where are they going to find help? If they launch an Agile adoption program, beyond the initial training in the techniques, where will they find assistance? Because the truth is, Agile just isn't like other skills that you can train in to your workforce. You can't just train it in and then say you're Agile. It really doesn't work that way because it's kind of far-reaching and it's an underlying philosophy that affects how you do many of your business functions, like your regulatory affairs, for instance, and how you manage your software teams, how you guide them, how you evaluate them. So it's far-reaching, and companies are so different from one another. So it would be malpractice if uh, <laughs> if I take a prescription that my sister's doctor wrote for her, <laughs> and human beings aren't as different from one another as, as businesses are from each other. So you can't just take the same thing. Uh, so that's what I would say. And I would say that you've got to ask yourself, where will you get additional help? And generally that would be coaching. And, you know, if you look for that, you should be looking for someone who has coached in an industry similar to yours because there is some domain knowledge that is helpful to have. And the other question that I would suggest, which really builds on what Nancy was just saying, a company looking to, to move to an Agile approach really needs to like take a long, hard look 
internally and ask themselves the question, are we willing to change the way we work? Are we willing to make changes, not just say, oh, this is that little thing that the, the software team does, but are we willing to make changes overall in our approaches to development in general? The changes, as Nancy just mentioned, are not going to be exactly the same from one company to the next. It's are we willing to err on the side of collaboration, as you just said? Are we willing to work toward uh, a more flexible approach and make our decisions at the last responsible moment? Excellent. I'm going to add one more question, if I may, because uh, as, as I was listening to what you were saying about coaching and so forth, uh, I, I can't help but think of the situations where you've got agile coaches who got their certification because it is the bandwagon to ride on in in the in in the uh, corporate world certainly, and and yet they have not done their own personal work to let go of control themselves. So they're going in and and coaching around uh, the traditional system. In other words, they're they're, they're masquerading probably in some cases better than others. So, so it's, it's not just a coach, but it's knowing what attributes you're looking for in a coach, I would think. There's, there's different kinds of coaching. Some of it is like inside the team, helping the team members work more smoothly together, just to be able to work as a real team. Because as I mentioned earlier, that is a bit different from traditional teams. And I think it's underappreciated. So there are coaches who more and more specialize in that area. I know people who just, you know, teach test-driven development, for instance, in skills and where they concentrate. And there's plenty of need for that. There are folks um, who coach in a little bit broader area like I do, um, both within the team but between team and managers. To be a coach, you've really got to be adaptable. And you got to have, I mean, I, it almost sounds like a cliche. I hesitate to say it, but, it, you know, everybody talks about listening skills. But I think so few people really practice them, you've got to look at a situation and come up with an approach suited to that situation. There's always a place for credentials, but, I mean, in in any other situation, we don't rely solely on a credential. I mean, no one gets hired purely because of what school they graduated from or what their resume looks like. You have an interview. You know, you try and see if there's going to be a match. More than once, I've I've had managers ask me to meet their team and talk with their team before they make their decision whether to have me come in and be their coach. You know, I rather like that. I think it's a, a good idea for the team to be on board with things like this. Uh, but it's a balancing act like everything is. So there's, there's no hard and firm answers. Uh, I think you just need to look for someone who has some background in the achievements you know what I mean, real, somebody who has real experience doing what you want them to do, but also the chemistry's got to be right. It helps, especially for something like a medical device field, for the, the person doing the coaching to have at least some knowledge and, and appreciation for the environment in which the people who are doing that development have to work. Uh, this is part of the reason that Nancy and I uh, collaborate so closely because she brings the agile knowledge and I'm, I'm, and is able to coach me on what agile is about and, and how it works. I'm able to then educate her on what are, what things are required in an FDA regulated environment, how, how things have to be documented, how things have to be uh, interrelated with each other, how hazard analysis is done and that sort of stuff. So 
and knowledge and appreciation of the specific environment is going to be very, very important. It'll be different for a team doing a, a commercial website development for a from what a team needs to know, from what a, a coach needs to know who's going into, say, a financial institution, from what a coach needs to know who's going, going to be going into a medical device company. Thank you both. But tell us where people can find your book. Agile Methods for SafetyCriticalSystems.com If you go there, you can see some uh, information about the book. You can get uh, links to our websites, and there's a place for you to leave comments or inquiries if you're interested. The book is available on Amazon, both in uh, paperback form and uh, Kindle. We do offer courses, you know, as a way to kick off. We often, you don't have to have a course. You can just have a conversation to get some questions answered. I guess the website is a good spot to start because that's where they can people can reach us. Perfect. All right. I want to thank you both very much for being on the program. Lots of insight shared here, and I'm hoping that uh, those who are listening who are actually implementing Agile in their companies have gained some sort of way to reflect on what, what's the state of their implementation and the character of it and the integrity of it, as well as the relevance to the sector, because I certainly find that there's uh, lots of things that are sectorally specific, as you mentioned, Brian, but also beyond that, there's just a lot of wider application in terms of how we move anything forward in an organization that shifts from uh, directing performance to collaboration. It's a big shift. Well, I know that this particular program got into more technical detail in, uh, with respect to software development, at least. Uh, I want you to know, as a listener, that this is not the only domain uh, that you can work with in terms of transforming your workplace culture, and, but it certainly offers a mindset, and, and there's been plenty of practitioner observations that companies that work with Agile actually have the mindset to work with self-management systems. They're more equipped. They're better prepared. They have the skills, or at least a a start on the skills, assuming they haven't uh, resided in the fake zone for too long. So, again, for me, this is one of many methods to help workplace cultures pivot to something that's more human-centered, more collaborative, and therefore more responsive, and certainly more more, uh, agile in the context of just plain flexible for dealing with surprises in, in, in the world that we have today, of which there are plenty. My name is Donna Jones. I'm your host. I very much appreciate you listening in to this program. Kindly share. To get a hold of me, you can go to frominsighttoaction.com or you can reach me out on Twitter, to E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones, or on LinkedIn. <laughs>